please join me as we come to our great God in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the God who who has given us your word. You're the God who comes into our lives and you seek to dwell among us. You've pitched your tent among the Israelites. And here in this age, you sent your son Jesus Christ who, who pitched his tent by taking on the form of a of a human man who became a human man. He became one of us. And he lived among us and he showed us who you are. We thank you that you are God who wants to know us, who wants us to know you. It's my prayer that as we encounter you in your word, that, that each one of us would encounter your son, Jesus Christ, that we would have a, a greater understanding, more than just an understanding, but a perception that, that is, is real and right before us. Might we see Jesus Christ this morning as we discover how He described Himself, how John described Him in this beautiful passage. And I, and I pray that not only would we have a better understanding and a perception of who our Savior is, but Father, I pray that You would change our hearts and change our lives as we realize how much we owe to You and how much we owe to, our, to Your Son, Jesus Christ. Glorify Yourself in our lives as we encounter You and Your Word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there was a little country store, and when a stranger uh, walked in, he noticed that there was a sign on the window that said, Beware of Dog. As he walked in, inside he noticed a harmless old hound dog. And there it was, asleep on the floor right next to the countertop by the cash register. And so he asked the store manager, and he said, I said, pardon me, sir, but is this the dog that folks are supposed to be aware of? He says, yep, that's, that's him. He replied, the stranger, the stranger couldn't help but be amused. And he said, I'm sorry, but that certainly does not look like a dangerous dog to me. Why in the world would you place a sign in the, in the, a sign in the window that says to beware of dog? And because, the owner said, before I put the sign there, people kept tripping over him. You know, sometimes in our lives we trip over things. We trip over the things that, that lay directly in front of us and we don't see. Sometimes we lack the clarity and a sense of vision regarding the things that are important. We look for opportunities to serve our God and we're blind to the people that, that are right around us that live in the same house that we live in. We pray for doors to be opened to share the Gospel. And then we wonder why no one stops, ever stops us on the street and says, how can I be saved? While God puts your coworkers in front of you, some of which may not even know that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We long to be a blessing in the lives of others, but when someone comes to us with real problems, too often, what's right in front of us, we conveniently we find an errand to run or things to do, a chore to fulfill. And sometimes we trip over the very obstacle in the door because we're not paying attention to what lays directly in front of our face. Each one of us sometimes have blinders on, don't we? In this life, there are things that we're called to do, things that we are passionate about, but sometimes we miss the opportunities because we don't have the clarity to recognize what God has put there. We're in danger of this as individuals, and we're also in danger of this as a church, as a, as a body of Christ, that we would, that we would lack have a lack of clarity as a church body. Well, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, which we're going to be discovering over this next month, we're going to find seven letters. John writes this, this um, large letter that was delivered to all these churches throughout Asia Minor 
But he begins with a description of Jesus and then seven letters that went to those specific churches. And these seven letters were written uh, and, and, and these churches had the distinct privilege of receiving a personal assessment from Jesus Christ Himself. Now most of the letters, they carried elements of praise where Jesus says, you're doing great here. I see you. I see you doing this. And this is good. Keep this up. And most of them also bear the weight of our Lord's disappointment. He says, I see you. And I see where you're lacking faith. I see where you're lacking this or that. And you need to come to Me for what you need. And like these seven churches, we believe in Scripture teaches that God has chosen every local church. He's chosen the church of DeWitt and DeWitt Evangelical Free Church to be a lampstand. We're a body of believers that are called to hold up the light that is our most marvelous and wonderful God. He's called us to reflect His magnificence. And so it's important for us as a church body that we would evaluate the things that we're doing right and the things that we would seek God's wisdom and counsel for in the failures which are directly under our noses, but for which sometimes we have no sense of clarity. In February, we're going to look at these seven churches. And, and my challenge to us is that each one of us, and we as a church, that we would seek to see ourselves in each one of these letters. When we read the, the letter to Ephesians, it was a letter to the church of Ephesus. But Jesus gives a personal challenge. He says, listen, if you have ears to hear, I want you to hear this. If you're not in the church of Ephesus, listen and obey these things. But today, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 9-20. through 20, And we're going to find, before we start reading those individual letters, that there are three lenses through which God provides clarity so that you and I can proceed with discernment and wisdom. Three lenses through which God provides clarity so that DeWitt Evangelical Free Church can proceed with what God has for us and we can live with discernment and wisdom in in our lives and in the body of our church. First, we find that clarity requires the lens of different circumstances. Listen to what John writes in verses 9-11. through John says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the Word of God and testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira, to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And so it's important that we recognize who the human author of this book was. This is this is the Apostle John. So when we're, when we're reading the book of Revelation and it says, I, John, this is the Apostle John. The one that, that in the, the Gospels, he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, John was actually a cousin to the Lord. He may have been a, a first or a second cousin. And, and the, though he was probably the youngest of the twelve disciples, um, along with Peter and, and his brother James, John was one of the three that was the closest to Jesus. John was present when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain. If you remember the story when Jesus, uh, all of a sudden before them, was transfigured and and shone brightly in His glory. Uh, He he invited three disciples to come, and and one of those was John. He was the one who leaned back on Jesus at the Last Supper 
And, and when Peter said, who, who's the one that's going to betray him? John is the one who leaned back and said, Lord, who is it? He was, he was in a position of honor and, and closest to Jesus. John knew Jesus possibly better than any other human being that lived on the face of this earth. By the time this book of Revelation was penned, he was likely the only remaining apostle of the twelve who hadn't been martyred for his faith at this point. But, but he describes himself. He, he doesn't come to us and say, I, John, I'm the apostle that Jesus loved. He, he doesn't come before us and say, I'm the guy that you need to listen to because God's given me all this authority. He doesn't say, you need to listen to this book because Jesus is building the foundation of the church on me and my other 11 compatriots. What he says is, he doesn't describe himself in terms of authority and in terms of his experience. Instead, he calls himself their, their brother, their partner. Someone who jointly has shared in something. And in particular, John points to their, to, to their partnership in three things. He says they shared in tribulation. Uh, if you remember, under Emperor Domination, uh, persecution of the church, uh, it, it, um, it, it took on a, a new scale that hadn't been expressed before. And so John was not a stranger to persecution. I think I mentioned that, that it was John who, church history tells us, had been doused with boiling oil. Uh, he survived the event, and then he was banished to a penal colony that was kept on this, this rocky island of Patmos. I don't, don't know what he was doing there, but maybe, maybe chiseling rocks or, or, or something, but it was, it, was a, it was a work colony. And here's this 90-year-old man that's been sent in exile to this island. He shared persecution with the believers. He understood what tribulation looked like. But he also shared in, in their role in the kingdom of Christ, particularly as, as they, um, they patiently endured their tribulation while they waited for the return of Jesus. You see, trials and tribulations sometimes have a tendency to blind us. Sometimes when we face different challenges in this life and people persecute you for, for believing in, in Jesus, when people... Um, take things away from you because you believe in Jesus. Sometimes we, we see the things that we lose and, and we don't have the perspective that we need. Sometimes circumstances can overwhelm us with their heaviness. And I'm sure that John, while he's sitting on that island, I'm sure he felt the weight of, of his troubles. He understood the tribulation of that time. But John, an, an aged man by this time, um, he recognized that these tribulations the different circumstances that God had allowed into his life, that they contributed to the clarity that he would receive regarding the revelation that, that he was about, about to behold. It was in this context of these trials that Jesus would provide comfort for the people who continued to endure so many sufferings all over the Roman Empire, but particularly in these seven churches in Asia Minor where they were suffering a great amount of tribulation at that time. And then in verse, John, in, in verse 10, John tells us that it was on a Sunday, possibly when he was personally worshiping, that he was taken into this trance and he, and he heard a sound. The sound announced the gravity of the vision that he was about to behold and the royalty of the one that he was about to encounter was made known. The voice which called out and commanded him to write these seven letters, it sounded like a, like a trumpet call. You know, many of you are in the midst of, of circumstances that are challenging and changing. And John was too. 
God had brought him through tribulations and he brought him to a new place. And John probably didn't, that he probably didn't want to be at. He wouldn't have chosen to be at Patmos on his own. And you may be facing difficulties and changes of your own, but remember that different circumstances are one of the lenses that God uses to provide clarity in your life. And he provides clarity in your ministry and clarity in your understanding of purpose and his mission for you. He uses those changes and He uses those trials to, 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 to give you a, a an understand, better understanding of what He's called you to be. He helps bring focus through them. But, but clarity also requires the lens of a new perspective. Seeing things maybe in a way that you hadn't before. You see, John would then turn around and he would find a second, the second lens in which his vision would become more clear. Look at verses 12-16. to he says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. On multiple occasions, uh, I've remarked to my wife, we've we've had this conversation where, um, well, I'll hear the sound of lightning. Uh, I'll I'll tell her to, to listen to the sound of lightning. Which she enjoys pointing out that lightning is not a sound. You see lightning, but you hear the thunder. Right, dear? Um, and so I inform her that I'm using a figure of speech. We call it metonymy. Uh, but, but she thinks it'd be better just to say what I mean. Uh, but this morning, while we're discussing clarity, I'd like to call the Apostle John to the witness stand and settle the matter because here, he does the same thing. He says, I, I turned to see the voice. Uh, and th- this is the first figure of speech we're going to find here. When John heard the voice that sounded like a trumpet, he says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to him. In reality, he turned to see the one who was speaking. But when John turns, John sees comp- his, what, what John sees completely opens his eyes. And it offers him a, the lens of, of a new perspective. Now again, remember who this is that's, that's speaking here. Remember that this is John who knew Jesus probably better than anybody else that was living on the face of the earth at that time. If there was anyone who could tell you what Jesus looked like, I mean, he walked with him for, for years. He, he probably knew him growing up as a, as, a, as a distant cousin. If there's anyone who could tell you what Jesus looked like, what Jesus acted like, what Jesus was like, this is the guy. This is the person that would have been able to tell you everything you needed to know about Jesus. However, the vision that he receives of our Lord and Savior presented, presented Jesus to John like John had never seen him before. In the original f- language, there, there's two words that, that we use to, to see something. And, and we translate both those words to, to see. But both of those words are used here in this verse. And we, we translate it to see, but, but John uses both of them in verse 12. The first occurs when he says he turns to see the voice. And this is the normal, the normal word that we normally use and the normal word that's used throughout most of the New Testament. It's the word blepo. It, just, it, it, it puts a, a focus, a, a, an emphasis on seeing something with your eyes. It, it's a physical act. 
is a very strong emphasis on, on what you actually perceive with the, the nerve, nerve system in your, in your eyes and your brain. But, but John intended to, he intended to look on the one that was speaking. And he turned to, to catch this glimpse of something. But on turning, John doesn't tell us, that he, again, that he, he blepo, that he saw him with his eyes. The word that he uses is the word adon. It also means to see, but it stresses the idea of experiencing something. It stresses the idea of perceiving what it is that your eyes see. It, it does mean to see. It does mean to look at something with your eyes. But it has this, this, under, this, this per, idea of a perception, a deeper understanding of who it was that he was really talking to. It expresses this idea of, of seeing and really understanding the one that his eyes were looking at. And so Jesus offered clarity to John, and it came through the, the lens of this new perspective. And within this vision that, John, that is given to John, he, he was awake, but the experience went beyond his physical senses, and his eyes were open to spiritual realities, which he describes, and he's going to use a lot of different metaphors. If you've ever read this first chapter of John, you might look at some of these words and go, you know, this is a really interesting description of what, Jesus, what John saw. And so he uses a lot of different metaphors, a lot of different similes and figures of speech. But as I mentioned last week, one of the things that's important when you're studying the book of Revelation is you need to be able to look and say, okay, what, what, what's being said here and how is he using the Old Testament to describe something in New Testament terms? And so a lot of times he's going to quote Old Testament passages and, and that's important to understand if you want to understand what, he, what he's saying about Jesus here. And the first thing that John saw, he says, I saw seven golden lampstands. Normally, we would use you know, light fixtures. But, but in those days, they would, they would put a lampstand, they would fill it with oil, and it would sit in a room, and, and it would provide light to the whole room. And, and he's looking around, and he sees seven golden lampstands. And again, as we discussed last week, these lampstands uh, probably point to Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1-10, through 10, where the lamps represented the power of the Holy Spirit. But whereas... Excuse me, the lamps represented the power of the Holy Spirit, but, but the, the lamps stood on, on, on lampstands that held up the light. And whereas the lamps stood on single lampstands in, in a single lampstand in Zechariah and inside the temple, if you look at Exodus 25, here in Revelation, John sees seven lampstands. Later in the passage, Jesus is going to explain to John that the lampstands symbolize seven churches that he was commanded to write the letter to. But, but don't miss the significance of this. I, I read through this passage so many times growing up and in my adult life and never really considered what it meant to be a lampstand for Jesus. You see, the churches are not the lamps. The, the churches of Asian Minor and DeWitt Evangelical Free Church are not the lamps. You are not the lamp. And a golden lampstand, it may shine and glean and reflect all kinds of brilliance, but in and of itself, a lampstand is just a glorified piece of mud. It's just elements. It's just material. It's stuff. And it's as dark as any other material that sits on the face of the earth. Its purpose, it is not the purpose of the churches to create light. It is not your purpose to create light. But the churches are to hold up the light so that everyone else can see the glory of the One who is the light. That's what God has called you to do. We oftentimes confuse these things. We go out into the world thinking, I'm the light. I need to share the message with everybody. I need to go and save everybody. And He's never called you to do that. He's never called you to be the light. 
He's called you to be the lampstand. He's called DeWitt Evangelical Free Church to be the lampstand so that when people in, in DeWitt and in eastern Iowa, when they see us, it's not DeWitt Evangelical Free Church that they see. It's not you that they see. It's the one that you're holding up. And He is the one who is the light. And so John sees these lampstands. But then notice that his attention, it doesn't stay there for very long. He, he, he catches a glimpse of them, but, but right away, he sees the one who's walking in the middle of the lampstands, who's standing in the middle of the lampstands. Immediately, his attention is drawn to the one who stands. As we ask ourselves what Jesus would see and, and as he looks at DeWitt Evangelical Free Church, we must examine ourselves in the context of who Jesus is. Jesus is the one that, that walks in our midst. And if we're to understand who we are, if we're to understand what our strengths are, if we're to understand what our weaknesses and our failures are, it's important that we don't examine those in the context of the other churches. It would have been easy for Ephesus to say, look at everything we're doing. Smyrna doesn't have this together. And oh, wow, look how great Smyrna's doing that. And Laodicea, wow. Uh, wish we could be more like that, Ephesus could say, but that's not the emphasis. The emphasis was that each one of them would say, who are we in light of the one who walks in the middle of all of us? And if we start comparing ourselves to this church or that church or this mega church or that small church, we're not going to get the main point. We have to examine ourselves in the light of who Jesus is. Understanding that He is interacting with us. He is engaged with us. And before we examine what the Spirit might say to us as a church, we need to be putting on our glasses and perceive who Jesus is as He reveals Himself to us. Particularly as He relates to the churches. The vision that John understood of Jesus here in this chapter is not one of Jesus as He judges the world, but one of Jesus as He judges the church. And so what did Jesus look like as He revealed Himself to those churches? Look at the description over these next few verses. The first thing He says is He was like a son of man. Jesus is, is one who took on the appearance of a man. He had, he had the human form. He actually became one of us. He became a man. In the book of Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel liked using this phrase a lot. And, and God would use this of Himself, but He also used this of one who is holy. Uh, of himself. In the book of Ezekiel, he repeatedly called the appearance of the, the likeness of the glory of the Lord as the likeness of a man. Daniel also uses the, the phrase and, as he refers to the Son of Man. It, it was, in these books, it was a title of deity, but it was also a title of humanity. And it was when Jesus lived here on this earth, it was Jesus' favorite title for himself. More than anything, any other description from the Old Testament that Jesus used regarding Himself, it was what Ezekiel and Daniel described Him as in their prophecies. Jesus described Himself as the Son of Man. You see, not only did the title point to the reality that Jesus was God and man, but it was also a title that pointed to the reality that He was the long-awaited Messiah that had been prophesied by, by the Old Testament. And so John captures... Ezekiel's son of man, and he, and he perceived him as the God-man who came to save people. If you want to understand how Jesus relates to the churches, you have to understand who Jesus is as God and as man, the perfect mediator that comes between us and God who came to save us. But John also says that he was clothed with a long robe. And throughout the Old Testament and in ancient times, a long robe was 
It was a mark of, of dignity. Uh, the high priest wore a long robe, as did many of the prophets. But I, but I think that John is, is trying to draw his audience's mind to another passage of someone who wore similar garments. A long robe in Ezekiel, again Ezekiel, but chapter 9. You see, in Ezekiel 9, God sent six angels to judge. We're going to see angels coming to pour out their judgments throughout the book of Revelation uh, if, if you continue to read the passage. Um, and so, it, a very similar context in which God is judging the people. And in Ezekiel chapter 9, though, the judgment is on Jerusalem. And these six angels were armed with weapons, and they were weapons of, of slaughter, they were weapons of destruction. And God commanded these six angels as they went out. And, and He says, I want you to go out and I want, to, I want you to execute the people at will because of all of their rebellion, because of all of their abomination. And so it's in the context of this passage in which God is unleashing His wrath on those who are sinners. But in that passage, Ezekiel takes note of these angels, but then he sees somebody else. In the middle of those six angels with these weapons of destruction, he takes note of another man in their, in their midst in the midst of these executors, and this man was also armed. And he looked at what was in the hand of this man, and as, he, as Ezekiel looked, he saw a writing case. A quill, if you will, with, with ink. A, 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 an instrument of, of, of writing and marking something. His job was to go out, and he was to evaluate the people that were about to be executed. And he was to, to go and mark anyone who was a remnant of the righteous who were still living in Jerusalem. And so he was the one who demonstrated mercy in the midst of this great judgment that Ezekiel was about to see. And so he was the one who demonstrated this mercy. And in the same way, Jesus is the one who has mercy in the midst of a world that is about ready to be judged in the book of Revelation. Jesus is the one who has mercy on the churches, and later on in Revelation, he will have mercy on the remnant in the middle of God's wrath through the tribulation period. And that is so encouraging to know because sometimes we think of Jesus in his, as, as a judge, which he is, and as we evaluate who are we and what would Jesus call us to be, where are we failing? It's important to understand that Jesus is the judge and he calls us out for the things that are sinful and wrong. But he's also the judge who is merciful and compassionate. John goes on to say he was girded with a golden sash. And so while he's merciful, he's also a judge. In the book of Revelation, those who wear a golden sash are those who serve to judge. And so the sash was a sign of majesty, but it was also one of, of, a sign of one who bore authority. He says that his hair was like wool, like snow. When you all came out this morning, uh, there's just a, a nice coat of, of white everywhere. It's always beautiful, isn't it? And then... A couple days pass by and the trucks go over it and, and the cars slosh around on it and, and uh, it turns to slush and it splashes all over everywhere. And, and, and there's some places that are still white, but there's a lot of brown and a lot of guck, isn't there? But when it f there's a fresh coat of snow and nobody's walked on it yet, it's just, it's pure. It's beautiful. There's, it's clean. And this is the same description that, that Daniel gave to, of the Ancient of Days back in Daniel chapter 7. In that passage, it was the Father who was described. And, 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 as, and He was described as the one who was eternal. The one who was pre-existent. The Ancient of Days. And, and here, John uses that same terminology from Daniel chapter 7 and he applies it to Jesus and says, look, He's the judge. And He's merciful. But He has authority. And He's come to judge the church and He's about to judge the world. 
But this is the one who also has the same eternal characteristics as God the Father because both of them are God. Jesus bears the same characteristics of unchangeability and eternality. He says that His eyes were like a flame of fire. Jesus had this penetrating gaze of one who sees all things. He has great understanding as He judges. His fierceness towards His enemies is consuming. And as we consider the Lord seeing us, understand that that nothing is hidden from His eyes. There's nothing that Jesus doesn't see. His gaze penetrates into each one of our souls and, and He knows us. He knows you. He knows the things that you're doing well. And He knows the areas that you're struggling. Who are we kidding when we think that we can hide any of our, our deepest thoughts from His sight? John describes Him as one who has the eyes like a, a flame of fire. There's nothing that can be hid from the light of His eyes. He had feet like burnished bronze. The emphasis upon Jesus' character as well as the angels that described that it describes in this way in Ezekiel and Daniel is, is upon absolute purity. Jesus walks in the midst of the golden lampstands. He walks in the midst of the churches. And He knows us. And He judges us with the experience of all of eternity. But His judgment is characterized by moral purity. And you and I live in a time when uh, people get offended by a lot, don't they? There's not a day that goes by when, when you don't see someone else judging somebody else for anything. And people just, they, they break out in, in criticism and, and we lash at one another. And when we do, most of the time people say these things uh, not based on anything from God's Word, not based on any truth that, that, that's revealed by God Himself, but just based on opinions and what we think we should be offended about. And, and usually when we do so, we can point the finger right back at ourselves and, and everybody else can see the hypocrisy uh, of those judgments. We live in this time when people are so offended by everything, but when the things are turned around and they cast judgment, they, they are just as, as, as guilty of, of doing the very same things. We need someone who can penetrate into our soul and, and tell us this is right, this is wrong, who knows us and who's able to correct our faults and who can, has the ability to say the hard thing. But isn't it comforting that the one who does know us and who even knows our deepest thoughts is the one who himself is pure and untainted by all these other things. And he's also the one who's compassionate and merciful. He goes on and says, His voice was like the roar of many waters. Uh, this is a, a, a phrase that comes from Psalm 93 and, and Ezekiel 43. And it speaks of God's glory. It speaks of the glory of the Lord's might being greater than the sounds of mighty waters. And the earth shows with His glory. He held seven stars. Now, John doesn't explain this right here, but later in the passage, Jesus is going to explain that the mystery of the seven stars are the seven messengers that He sends to the churches. And there's a lot of discussion regarding what, what are the messengers. The word messenger is, is angelos, from where we get 
angel, but also oftentimes it's translated just messenger. And so there's a lot of discussion. Are these messengers angels? Maybe one angel that, that oversaw or was um, responsible in some way to each of these churches? Were these messengers the pastors who, who oversaw and, and, and spoke God's Word to those churches? Or maybe literally they were seven actual messengers that, that after... Uh, Paul wrote the book of Revelation. He put them in their hands and those messengers actually carried the book of Revelation to those seven churches. The fact is, is we don't really know, even though a lot of people share some great insight on this. But what we do know is that, that Jesus demonstrates that He has authority over them. And He has the authority over the churches themselves. And so when Jesus speaks, the message that the messengers carry, we need to listen to. And finally, it also says that his, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Uh, the sword is, um, that's described here is what we would call a broadsword. Uh, a lot of swords are just sharpened on, on one side, and the other side is, is blunt. But a, but a, a broadsword has it's a sharp edge on both sides. And so this is a, a weapon that, that causes great destruction and damage wherever, wherever it's swung. And Jesus makes it clear that the words that he speaks... They don't need, they don't need a, a wind-up. That whichever way he swings and however he uses his words, they have authority. And, he speak, and when he speaks judgment, and he's willing to do so in battle, he's willing to do so in battle not only with the world, but he's also willing to do so with the church. And he's willing to do so with those in the church who make compromise. And so he says, I'm the one who speaks my word and my word is sharp. It is two-edged and it is serious business when I say something. We need to listen. And then he says that his face was like the sun shining in full strength. His terminology here comes from Judges chapter 5. This was the song of Deborah and Barak. You see, Jesus appears as the victorious warrior. But He will also share His brilliance with the righteous. Jesus uses this phrase in Matthew chapter 13 where Jesus promised that the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. In Judges, those who love the Lord will also shine. So therefore, John, he sees Jesus through the lens of this new perception. It's a new perspective that, that John hadn't seen before. He knew Jesus as a man. He knew Jesus as He walked among us. But when John saw Jesus that day, what he saw was something that revealed the character of Jesus and, and, and who He was in His brilliance. He saw Jesus as He had never seen before, but this vision particularly relates to how Jesus interacts with the churches. He judges our church just as He judged these seven churches in ancient Turkey. He judges with authority, with mercy. He has the wisdom of eternity and the perception of being all-knowing. He's absolutely pure, but He's also powerful. He's willing to do battle, but He's also the one who shares His glory with those who are His righteous ones. And this is how Jesus understands Himself, and this is how Jesus wants us to understand Him. This is the lens through which we have to understand our Lord as we consider how is our church doing as we walk with Him? He walks among us and He sheds light, the light of the truth in every dark corner of our hearts and in our church itself. But there's a third lens that clarity requires and it's the clarity 
It's, it's the lens of humble action. John concludes the chapter and he says, when I saw Him, he turns to see the sound of the voice. And as he turns, he sees seven lampstands, but then quickly focuses on the one who's walking in the midst of the lampstands. But after seeing and understanding this description of who Jesus is, quickly, he says, when I saw Him, I fell at His feet as though dead. But He laid His right hand on me, saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are, uh, excuse me, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. You know, Abram, the Israelites, Daniel, Isaac, the women at the well, all of them were told, don't be afraid. Don't fear. When they, when they saw a vision, when they saw the glory of the Lord, whether it was in a vision or in person, each one of them fell down on their faces. Sometimes like John, as they, though they were dead. And each time, they're told by an angel or told by God Himself, don't, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. But it's interesting, in that same passage with the women at the, at the tomb, there were guards there. And, and when that earthquake took place and the angels appeared, the, the, those, those men shook. They shook in their boots. And, and they fell down as though they were like dead men. And, and no response. There was no response or comfort, comfort that was given to them at all. But for God's people, He says, don't be afraid. Also, the apostles, when they saw Jesus in His resurrected body, uh, He came and he, he, he was standing in their midst. And they were terrified. And Jesus rebuked them and He says, why, why are you afraid? Why do you doubt? Likewise, Jesus... Jesus encourages John not to be afraid. And then he follows up with, with the command with three statements that point to his deity. We can be encouraged when we come face to face with Jesus because number one, he is the first and the last. The Alpha and the Omega. The A and the Z. He is the eternal one. Before anything else was, before any element had ever been created, before any other being had come into existence, He was there. And when everything else fades away, when the universe is swallowed up and destroyed, He will sustain those who are His and He will reign for eternity. Jesus also calls Himself the Living One. See, He has life in Himself. By His death, He paid for our sins and then He sat at the right hand of the Majesty on high. He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him because He lives forever. And He makes intercession for us. But thirdly, Jesus He also tells John, He says, John, says, don't be afraid. I have the keys to Hades and death. He has power over life and death. Christ is sovereign over all of life. 
No one can live without Him. And He decides who and when one dies. And He has control over our eternal state. There's a song that, that many of us have sung over the years uh, entitled, I've, I've Decided to Follow Jesus. Um, very simple song. I've decided to follow Jesus. I've decided to follow Jesus. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. There's a few choruses. About 200 years ago, there was a great revival in Wales uh, and England. And as a result of this, this revival, there were many missionaries that decided that God had called them to go into all the world. And they heard God's great commission and they, they went uh, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And many of those missionaries came from England and Germany and they came to the northeast portion of India to spread the Gospel. Uh, Dr. P.P. Job, a, a preacher and evangelist from India, uh, he wrote in his book about the story behind that song. He says at that time, the northeast, northeast India was, was not divided into many states as it is today. Uh, the region was known as Assam. And it comprised hundreds of tribes. The tribal communities were quite primitive and aggressive by nature. They were also called headhunters because of a social custom which required their male members of the community to collect as many heads as possible. A man's strength and his ability to protect his wife was assessed by the number of heads that he had collected. Therefore, a young man of marriageable age would try and collect as many heads as possible and then he would hang them on the walls of his house. How's that for some home decor? The more heads a man had, the more eligible he was considered to be. And so into this hostile and aggressive community came this group of, of Welsh missionaries spreading the Gospel, the message of love, message of peace and hope of Jesus Christ. And, and naturally, they weren't very welcomed. But one of those missionaries, one Welsh missionary succeeded and, and he shared the Gospel with one man from that tribe. And that man and his wife and his two children all believed in Jesus Christ. And that man's faith proved contagious. And many villagers began to accept Christianity. They accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, as their Lord. And angry, the village chief, he summoned all the villagers. And then he called that family who had first converted to renounce their faith in public or face execution. Moved by the Holy Spirit, the man instantly composed a song which became famous down the years. He sang, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Enraged at the refusal of the man, the chief ordered his archers to arrow down the two children. And as both boys lay twitching on the floor, the chief asked, will you deny your faith? You've lost both your children and now you will lose your wife too. The man was saying these words in reply, though no one joins me, still I will follow. Though no one joins me, still I will follow. Though no one joins me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. The chief was beside himself with fury and ordered his wife to be, the, the wife to be arrowed down. And in a moment, she joined her two children in death. And now he asked one last time, I'll give you one more opportunity to deny your faith and live. In the face of death, the man sang the final memorable lines, the cross before me, the world behind me. The cross before me, the world behind me. 
cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back. No turning back. He was shot dead, just like the rest of his family. But with their deaths, a miracle took place. The chief who ordered the killings was moved by the faith of the man. And he wondered to himself, why? Why should this man, his wife and two children, die for a man who lived in a faraway country over 2,000 years ago? There must be some supernatural power behind this family. And I too want that. And so in a spontaneous confession of faith, right there after he had executed this entire family, he declared, I too belong to Jesus. When the crowd heard this from the mouth of their chief, the whole village accepted Christ. And that song we sing today is based on the last words of Nox saying, a man from the Garo tribe of Assam. And today, that is the song of the Garo people. No turning back. No turning back. You see, when you understand who the Jesus is that you follow, then your circumstances will not hinder your faith. They will only serve to clarify the life that you are called to live before Him. When you perceive His character, it will give you a new perspective, not only on who He is, but how you should live your life. And then that clarity will result in humble action. If your Jesus is just some person on a poster, the opening flap of your Bible, if he's just some, some picture that you have in your mind of this individual that, that's made in the, the form of, of how we perceive him, it's not going to change your life the way it's, he's called, that he calls you to. But if you have the clarity of an understanding of who he is, it will result in humble action before you. You see, an understanding of the Savior always demands action. It requires first that we recognize who we are in the frailty of our own state. It requires that we can only be saved and sanctified by the One who lives. And He uses us for His glory, not the other way around. It is not us who use Him for our own glory. And because it requires action, we cannot sit idly after we've come into an understanding of who He is. We must obey. And we must follow Him. So who is your Jesus? The Father in Heaven, we marvel each time we open the pages of Scripture and we discover the, the, the beauty of what You have shown us here. Most of the time, we, we picture Jesus in His humanity. We picture Jesus on the cross. We picture Him walking and eating with His disciples. Teaching on a mountain. But when He's revealed in His glory, oh, what that will be like one day when we see. When we truly see. And here You've given us a little bit of a glimpse. A glimpse of what John and Peter and, and James may have seen there on that mountain. A glimpse of what John saw there on Patmos. I pray that each one of us here 
would understand the words that are before us. Understand how You have revealed Your Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that it would impact us in a way that there would be no turning back. That it would change our lives for a lifetime and for eternity. As we go out from here, Lord, might You bring us to humble action as we walk in obedience with You. Even as Your Son is walking in our midst. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please.